Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hello, and welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Marcy. Today, we're talking with author and illustrator, Grace Lynn. Hi, Grace. Hi, Grace. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As most of you listening know, Grace Lynn is the winner of the 2010 Newbery Honor for Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, as well as many, many, many other awards, and the co-host of two other podcasts. Mm -hmm. I'm still uh, co-hosting Book Friends Forever, and I have a podcast called Kids Ask Authors. (laughs) That must be exhausting. Um, You know, it's really fun, actually. There's something... (laughs) There's something I really like about podcasting, I think, because it's so much more um, comparatively, it's instant gratification compared to writing a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is Kids Ask Authors about besides the the obvious from the title? Yeah, so it's um, a weekly podcast that's five to 10 minutes long. And it's me and a different author every week. And we're going to answer one kid question. And the kid questions are usually about writing or illustrating, like the typical, like, where do you get your ideas? And then me and Mo Willems will talk about where you get your ideas, you know, (laughs) like things like that. And then um, uh, I'm hoping to end each episode with, um, with something from kids, like either a kid book review or a kid reading a poem they've written or a kid telling a joke. So it's kind of a a way for kids to kind of showcase their work as well as learn more about writing and illustrating from from the books that they've hopefully read and loved, the authors of the books they've hopefully read and loved. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, well, it's it's pretty fun. And I'm really hoping that a lot of people listen to, especially at schools. Like my dream is that like a teacher or a librarian, like every Tuesday or Monday that comes out says, you know, before we start our writing unit, let's listen to this week's, you know, kids ask authors and they listen to it every week. You know, I guess it's because um, I do so many school visits and I just see what an impact it is when an author can visit a school. Yet I also know like not every school can afford to have an author or or have the resources to bring an author in. So I'm kind of hoping that this can like fill that void for schools and, and kids and students who might not be able to meet an author in real life. I'm curious, and this is along the lines of maybe a a question that a kid would ask, but I'm curious about how you started making art and how you started writing as a child. So let's see, as a child. So I think that I always loved books. Um, You know, I was talking to someone at my, um, I had a book launch for my book, the Mulan book. And um, the one of the women who came up said, oh, your books were the books that I read at recess. Instead of going out for recess, I would stay in the library and read books. And your books were the ones I read. And I, that just made me feel so like warm and fuzzy inside. Cause that's exactly how I was. Like I didn't go outside and play at recess. I just stayed inside the library and read books. And, um, I think it was like that love of books so early on, just like that cozy feeling that when you, I read a book, I was like at home, uh, that, made me want to make them. You know, I, I was always saying how, you know, in school when we were studying like the clouds and other people would 
make little dioramas with a shoebox and cotton cotton balls. They make uh, I would always make like a book about the clouds, you know, <laughs> or like when we were studying about the Vikings and people would make like a Viking hat. And I always made like a book about the Vikings because <laughs> I always thought uh, books were just so great. So I, and I just loved books so much. So um, I think I was always really interested in making books, uh, but I never really thought it could be a real job uh, until um, I was about seventh grade, sixth or seventh grade. And I entered this big book contest, this huge book contest. It was national where if you wrote and illustrated your own book, if you won first place, they'd actually publish your book. So a teacher actually suggested that I enter this contest. And so I did, and I did not win first place. So my book was not published, but I did win fourth place. And with fourth place, I also won $1,000. And with that money, I was so excited and thrilled. I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, (laughs) I'm going to be an author and illustrator forever. And that's when I decided (laughs) I wanted to be like a job. Like that was going to be my career. And honestly, and I kept that ever since then. Like it never, that idea never left for my whole life. And that's why I'm here right now. I was reading actually that story in um, an interview you gave with Publishers Weekly. And oh. you, you mentioned also that the person who won first place in that same contest turned out to be Dave <laughs> Pilkey, which is amazing. Yes. <laughs> I was just wondering if you ever brought that up to him later. Actually, he brought it up to me. <laughs> <laughs> I met him for the first time at the Carl Honors. on, And he said, Grace Lynn. And I said, Dave Pilkey. <laughs> He's like, you did a book and you and I won over you and I feel so guilty about it. <laughs> Why do you feel guilty about it? Your book was awesome. But he I guess he he's he's felt he said he felt guilty that um that he won because he he it was just such a different kind of book. Like his book was like really funny, you know, and slapstick. And he's just like, Your book was like literature. <laughs> but his book was his his book deserve to publish. Mine was not ready to be published as well. That was kind <laughs> so, of him to say. He was so sweet about it. He was really sweet and so kind about it. Oh, <laughs> how funny that he noticed that too. Yeah, <laughs> I I didn't ask him how he remembered, but um, I should I I should I wondered if he remembered because I um. I talk about it a lot. Maybe <laughs> like, he, was pinged, he was pinged on Google or something. <laughs> What kind of mediums did you start with? Did you just start with drawing? Did you like to use paints? Um, um, yeah, and then how did that evolve into what you're doing now? Um, I just did drawing with, you know, p- paper and pencil and watercolor. I used to use a lot of watercolor. Um and that's um, what hasn't changed is that I still work very traditionally. Um, I still use paint and pencil and paper. I'm probably one of the few artists that have not really uh, been able to, to embrace the computer as a, as a, uh, as a drawing skill or or like a, what do they call it? Using, I haven't been able to use the computer yet. (laughs) I've tried, but I have not been happy with, with the results yet. Uh, I probably just need a lot more practice, but uh, I still use, I still work very traditionally. Um, The difference is now I use, um, gouache instead of watercolor. Originally, um, I wanted to be more of a traditional uh, illustrator like uh, Edmund Duloc or Kay Nielsen. Like they, they do these really beautiful fairy tale illustrations. Um, 
But as time went on and um, I started thinking more about what kind of artist I wanted to be instead of just kind of copying these great masters. And uh, I started uh, integrating a lot of things um, that I was interested in, like Chinese folk art and things like that into my art. And those kind of, um, you know, like flat colors and patterns and things like that. And uh, gouache is just a better medium for those things. It gives you that bright color and everything's opaque. So now I use gouache. That's so fun. I really love the woodcut style in Where the Mountain Meets the Moon. Oh, thank you. Or woodblock style, rather. <laughs> is that woodblock or is it linoleum? It's it's honestly uh, it's it's just um, ink and <laughs> it's ink on paper. I just oh, tried to make wow. it like <laughs> I just made it look. I just tried to make it look like paper cuts or wood or wood cuts. <laughs> I actually tried to do like paper cuts, but it was like way too hard. So I just <laughs> did it by just I just drew them. <laughs> well, it turned out beautiful. <laughs> So I was wondering, I had read that your you had talked about your mom being a little disappointed that you were not super interested in your your Asian culture when you were little, but how does she feel now that the whole direction that your books have taken is entirely about Asian culture? <laughs> I think she's very surprised. <laughs> <laughs> she's very surprised, and I think she's um she's surprised and I think she's uh very um um for lack of a better word, I think grateful, but I don't know if that's uh, maybe gratified is better <laughs> gratified because I think um, it was something that she always wanted to pass down to us. And, um, and I think she's really happy that at least I, I appreciate it now. Um, I think she, she's, we, we both actually regret that um, I never learned how to speak Chinese and I still have, uh, I still can't really read Chinese. Um, but at least now I can still learn the culture and I really appreciate it. So I think she's really happy about that. Is your mother um, the person who introduced you to um, the stories that are in Where the Mountain Meets the Moon? Um, yes. Yes. She's the one who... Um, so just in case your readers didn't don't know, so I I didn't I was not interested in my Asian heritage at all when I was younger. And my mom tried all these things to get me interested. And whenever she tried to get me interested, I would completely reject it. Like she, she would, uh, you know, buy me Chinese clothes and I wouldn't wear them. She tried to speak, teach me how to speak Chinese and I wouldn't learn, you know. And so uh, to, she realized that the only way that I would ever learn anything about our Asian heritage was if she snuck it in. So she took, um, she saw that I loved books. Uh, she saw that I loved fairy tale books. So she went and got about six to 12 Chinese fairy tale books and put them on the bookshelf in the living room. She did not give them to me because she knew that if she gave them to me, I'd be like, oh, you just want me to read these because they're Chinese <laughs> and I wouldn't have touched them. So she just put them on the bookshelf in the living room and she hoped that I would find them and read them. And I did. Um, I was not really impressed with those Chinese fairy tale books when I was younger. I, they were, you know, just plainly translated from Chinese to English. The writing was really plain and, you know, kind of rough. The, the It was printed on cheap paper. The illustrations were like these plain black and white drawings. Like, I was not impressed with these fairy tale books, but um, somehow the stories still stayed with me. And they are kind of like the foundation to Where the Mountain Meets the Moon, Started with the Sky, When the Sea Turned to Silver, and even my book, the Mulan book. Uh, they've become kind of like the foundation to these um fantasy folktale stories that I've written. Uh, so it's been really an interesting journey. 
Sorry, you mentioned the Milan book. Uh, if if those of you who like to wear the mountain with the moon, um, and when the sea turns to silver, I think they'll like this one too because it's also that same kind of interweaving of stories and folk tales. That's so exciting because a lot of times I really, you know, you watch a Disney movie and you're like, that's great, but I really want the backstory because the backstory sounds more interesting than the actual Disney adventure. <laughs> Especially personally for me, I really want Ursula's story, but <laughs> there's got to be something that's interesting true. there. But um, I had never really thought about the Mulan backstory and that is really uh, interesting. Yeah, it, it was super fun to write. So I, I hope people who read it have as much fun reading it as I did writing it. <laughs> So we always love to talk to people about what their Newberry experience was like when, I mean, I know it's not the same as having to give the whole speech when you, when you get the medal, but in honor is a really big deal. What was it like at the ceremony? Oh, it was amazing. You know, like, um, I kind of, I, I remember I wrote a blog post about it, calling it my Cinderella night. And I really felt like it was, you know, uh, it was just so much fun. Um, you know, to get all dressed up. You know, when you're in children's books, you don't really get that many opportunities to get like all dressed up <laughs> and like and like feel like it's a special night and everything. And and it's like a big banquet. You know, it's it was really it, it was it was something I always treasure. I do remember when I did. They gave me the the plaque. I remember thinking like they can't take it back now. <laughs> <laughs> it is shocking it's mine. people say that. <laughs> Um, so where was the ceremony held your year? Um, I think it was Washington, D.C. Yep, the, because uh, it was because um, we were talking about how when I won the Caldecott honor last year, they said how how it was full circle. It was D.C. was when I where I received the Newberry honor and D.C. was also where I, I received the Caldecott honor. So it was really, really a full circle. That was exciting. We were there to see that one. <laughs> oh. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so are there any um, particular memories that you have from your Caldecott experience? Um, well, <laughs> so the biggest thing I remember about Newberry was I was so excited to get all dressed up, right? So I remember searching and searching for like the perfect dress, <laughs> right? And I finally like saw the perfect dress online it was this one from anthropology and i um and i went to went online they weren't selling it anymore they didn't have it in my size and i kept looking and like going to ebay and all these things trying to find this dress in my size and then one day um i was on social media and i saw this other author cindy pon and she was wearing the dress. <laughs> and I was like, that's my dress. And um, we had kind of known each other, but we weren't like really good friends or anything, but we kind of like knew of each other. So like I kind of reached out to her and um, I was asked, I was asking her like, where, where, where did you get the dress recently? You know, like, were there others? And she's like, why don't I just sell you this one? I think we're the same size, you know, and we were the same size. And I bought the dress from her and I was so excited and I loved the dress so much and I wore it, but I never wore it again. <laughs> After the Newberry, you know, like I said, there's not a lot of opportunities to get dressed up. And so um, when I went, when I won the Caldecott and I was like, oh, I can buy a new dress. But then I thought about it and I was like, I should wear the Newberry dress. <laughs> And so I was so excited, like I can finally wear it again. It'll be like it'll be the second time I wear it. I could call it so um 
of course it'd been like 10 years. So I had to like work out <laughs> for like the months from the call to, from the call to the ceremony. Like I was, I was like working out every day <laughs> and like tracking my food so I could fit in the dress again. <laughs> but the best thing about the Caldecott was, um, I got to wear my dress and also uh, my daughter, I brought my daughter this time uh, oh. because she, a uh, big moon cake for little star, um, she's the child that's in the book. And so I had her, uh, she came up with me to receive the plaque. And so that was really fun and a really special moment for both of us. That's so sweet. I have to say that that book was one of our just like huge, huge sellers, like right when it came out, but then continues to be, which is not always the case. And um, so nice to hear, but we really love it. And the kids really love it too. And it's just, um, sometimes it's hard to find that intersection between what the kids like and what the parents like for the kids. Mm-hmm. And so it's really nice that you hit that like sweet spot. <laughs> That's, you know, that has been my goal. I mean, um, my last novel was in 2016 and, um, and then I turned to picture books. And one of the reasons why I turned to picture books is because I, I too, at that point, I too had a young, young child and it was so eye-opening to see what she liked versus what I thought she would like (laughs) or what I liked, you know, and it was humbling. Um, and it was also, it also kind of made me feel like I had been very arrogant, you know, (laughs) like, and, um, and it was after so, you know, so many years of realizing, um, uh, what, I was wrong about, or at least in terms of my own particular child, what I was wrong about. And it made me feel like I need to take up this challenge of finding a book that, that I know my daughter would like and kids, real kids would like and what I like, you know? And so that's what, um, these last two books, a big mooncake for little star and a big bed for little snow has been trying to do like take the, take, get that Venn diagram (laughs) of, of adult and kid, you know? stories. Well, from my perspective, you've been successful uh, with that all along. In our house, we love Alvina um, very much. (laughs) And I feel like there's a great intersection of what you're talking about in there. So. Oh, thanks. Well, also as like a a cultural intersection too, I know that in a lot of interviews, you've talked about how you feel like it's important, like what you're doing is giving the, the, Asian American culture, the exposure that it deserves for the kids growing up with the books who are Asian American, and they don't see themselves in most books. But I have to say that from the other side of it, like, we have, Jenny and I each have small children, and and particularly little girls who are growing up and learning to read, and, and they're very white. And they're, um, they need the books that you're writing to show them that there are other faces besides their own. (laughs) Because, you know, little kids are so self-centered, and they're so absorbent like what what you give them is what they'll internalize and so if they don't have anything that shows them something different they assume they're the center of the universe so definitely I agree and I think that's what's so beautiful is that um I think that it's only been in like the last I would say six six years or so where people have kind of started to embrace that you know and realize that all the books that they read to their kids don't have to look just like their kids, you know? And, uh, I think it's such a beautiful thing that's been changing in, in our country. Like, and I have to hold on to that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, you're excellent <laughs> at the mirrors and the windows. I mean, it's just it's just great. Um, so I am curious, because um, we talked about Newberry and Caldecott, but of course, you've won a lot of other awards. And the other one that I'm really curious about is um, your experience winning the Asian Pacific American Awards for Literature. Mm. Um, I know uh, that that's something that they've just started announcing with the Youth Media Awards. Um, but anything you'd like to share about that experience would be wonderful. Well, when uh, when the Year of the Dog won that honor, um, it was quite a long time ago. I think it would be 2006 even. Um, and it, I was not able to go to the ceremony at the time because um, my husband was sick. Um, but it was also a bit of a, I don't know how to put it, it was a little, um, uh, I don't want to say, de- I guess for lack of a better word, I'll say deflating because uh, it was didn't seem to be as well known or as well respected. Uh, like nobody had ever, like, like I won the Asian Pacific Heritage, you know, like it was like, what's that? You know, <laughs> like nobody knew of the award and uh, like they didn't even announce it at the same time as the Newberry and Caldecott. You know, like it was a little bit deflating that it was such a lovely award, yet it was so unknown. And that's why I'm so happy now that they are announcing that award with the Newberry and Caldecott. They're giving it kind of like the honor that it deserves, giving it the recognition recognition that it deserves now. It's uh, another one of those things that in the last, you know, couple of years have started to change. And I'm so glad to see it. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. They have made some sweeping changes as to what they name the awards and what what awards are included in the YMAs. It's really been heartening, <laughs> given the political climate. Just, I know it makes the I know it makes the ceremony really really long, <laughs> which which I completely feel for those watching. But you know, it's just it when when it all the way back in 2006. You know, it just made you feel like. That's great that I won this award, but this award has been kind of like shunted to the side. Like it's not very, you know, it didn't mm-hmm. feel like a real award in some ways. And and it, that's completely not true. It just felt that way because of the way it was represented compared to all the other ones. Well, I actually, I was on the Alex Awards and um, the committee. And so I was in the audience for the announcements. And it was amazing to see and feel just everyone so excited to see these these awards that have been around for years and that are wonderful awards actually included. And we get to see the titles on the screens along with everything else. Um, yeah. It was just really, just you know, yeah, it's really great. Cheer, you know, like, yeah. also, it's like also, you know, like I said, there's, there's so few things in, in, in the children's book industry where you get to get dressed up, where you get to really celebrate, <laughs> you know, like, and just to hear people cheer for your book. Like it's just something that all authors, and illustrators dream of. And so like, it's, it, so it's so nice to give, give them that, you know? Yeah. And just the baseline of like having that streamed, anyone who's watching that now has a list of books that they are, are high quality and they're authentic and they don't have to go search for that list. They don't have to go digging and then it may not be there, you know, like they have, yeah. they have titles ready to go to put in their cart and order, you know, and that's, that's such a huge thing. Cause that, it, you know, you know, this, I mean, that, that means they're in kids' hands faster. Exactly. It's so great. Um, so I love Year of the Dog um, a lot and oh. I was curious if 
you kept journals when you were a child or if you did a lot of kind of going back and remembering while you wrote that book? Um, um, I did a lot for that book. I did mostly remembering. I do remember keeping a diary and I, I didn't, I could not find it, but I remember having a diary and I spelled diary wrong and it was like, dear Dury. <laughs> <laughs> And like at one point, dear, dear dairy. (laughs) Uh, So I do remember very specifically making writing a diary and then getting teased by my older sister who found it and said, you said, who's dairy? (laughs) But I did not um, use those those diaries for the for the books. It was a lot of remembering. (laughs) It is so interesting when we talk to different authors about how they did the books about about their own childhood, how like everybody has a different way that they did it. We were talking to somebody else who used journals and said that she could never remember anything if she tried to go that way. So it's impressive for me both directions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's what's bad is that um because I use my memories, there's a lot of things that I put in the book that were probably not true, but I think that they are true. <laughs> like, there's a scene where um, Pacey, the main character, meets her good friend, her best friend, Melody, and they meet like in the cafeteria. And um, Melody is based on my good friend, Alvina. And I'll be like, yeah, we met in the cafeteria. And she's like, no, we didn't. <laughs> and I was like, I did. That's how I wrote it. And she's like, well, that was fiction. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> it's auto fiction, Alvina. <laughs> it must be so interesting and a little bit surreal to have her be your book editor, but also have been present at the things that you're writing about. So she can also like sort of fact check you as you go along. Yes. <laughs> so sometimes I make her let me do the untrue stuff. <laughs> so her name is Alvina. So Alvina the chicken is named after her. So, um, Alvina and I used to be, um, roommates when we were both starting our careers. So she was like an intern at the horn book and I was, uh, just like on my second book, um, with different publishers. And one day she came home and she said, uh, I keep getting, uh, all these things emailed to me with my name spelled wrong today. I got a fax from somebody, from somebody who called me Olvina and, uh, I had, uh, I had studied in Rome, Italy, so I knew a fair amount of um, Italian. And I'm like, Olva means egg in Italian. And I was like, Olva, Olvina, that would be a really funny name for a chicken. And I kind of had this idea of a chicken, <laughs> like immediately from the name Olvina. So <laughs> it was inspired by a misspelling of her name. <laughs> well, on a slightly different tack, um, I was reading in, an- I keep referencing interviews that you did, I'm sorry. <laughs> But I was reading in an interview that you did with uh, a website called Booksluts that you mentioned that kids' books are 95% of what you read. So I was wondering what you're reading now. So uh, right now I am reading – I got an advanced reader copy of uh, Stamped – I'm going to get the whole title. The Stamped Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, the one that um, Jason Reynolds and Imran Kendi wrote together. But it's amazing. I think Alvina and I are going to do a book club on it on our pod, on Book Friends Forever podcast um, because it's just – I feel like it's like a must-read for everyone. My favorite Newbery books – so let's see. There's a bunch of old ones that I love, but um, that I would recommend 
parents read them with their kids. So like, for example, I love the cricket in Times Square. And uh, but there's an Asian character in there that is really not that bad. But they, the way they wrote the, his the way he speaks, like they give him a really thick Chinese accent, which is a little bit caricature. Um, but uh, I would I would still recommend the book, but I would definitely ha- recommend uh, parents to talk to the kids a bit about like, oh, you know, like that's a little bit of a stereotype there, you know, uh, but the book is still beautiful. And I, I love that. Uh, what's another one? Um, that I really love. Uh, the same thing with uh, Walk Two Moons by Sharon Creech. I love, love, love that book. Um, you might, people might want to talk about how they say, in, she gets these like little fortunes to say, uh, you, something about walking, you only know another person's path by walking in their moccasins, you know, like, mm-hmm. and that's, and um, I think, uh, like I said, I don't, I still recommend the book, but that might be something to talk to your kids about like why do you think they use moccasins you know and like what what that means in terms of the native american um people of our country you know um so it's it's hard because there's so many beautiful beautiful books but um that we we still should read but we probably need to just talk to our, our kids about um how things have changed a bit from when these books were published to now. <laughs> well, it's a problem we run into a lot reviewing Newbery books because we do love the books, but a lot of them, I mean, they're a product of, of their, you know, current. Their time, yeah. The, yeah, product of their time. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean that we can't still love them, you know? <laughs> and I, I feel like it's so it's, a, it's such a, a fine line because some people, some people think like we should not read them anymore. Um, but I think that these books are still worthy of reading, but I do think we need to, to talk about it in a, just to give, give kids like a heads up. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's okay to admit that parts of books that we love are problematic as long as we actually talk about the issues. Yeah. Because yeah, I don't, I don't think we'll move forward if we just keep giving these, giving kids these books and not talking about them. And so I think yeah, that's the key. And then for people who have not uh, tried the podcasts, can you tell people where to find your podcasts? Sure. Uh, So I have the podcast with my good friend, um, Alvina Ling, who we grew up together and she's also my editor. Uh, We're called Book Friends Forever. And you can just get that on iTunes or wherever wherever you listen to your podcast. (laughs) Um, But you can go to our website, bookfriendsforever.com, and you can listen to that there. And then my other podcast, Kids Ask Authors, and uh, that will also be available on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. But you can also go to our website, kidsaskauthors.com. And there we are also asking for kids to submit their questions and to submit their poems and their book reviews and their jokes. And it's a really easy process. There's a phone number that you can just call up and like leave your poem or your joke, you know, whatever you want, just as a voicemail message. Um, The only thing is that we ask that, um, uh, parents or their care, these kids caretaker, uh, text, text us a copy of the permission slip that they sign just because we want to make sure that it's all above board. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, I know you'd wrapped up kid lit women, but there are a hundred episodes and they're going to remain available, correct? Yes. They're going to remain available. And also, uh, to end that podcast, uh, we ended it with a scholarship, 
for a woman of color uh, who has a passion for illustration, for children's book illustration, to take any workshop at the Highlights Foundation. And it's a full scholarship. It pays for travel. It pays for tuition. It pays for everything, room and board at to, to take some kind of illustration uh, workshop there. So I hope if um, you are a woman of color that wants to illustrate for picture books or you know a woman of color, um, I hope that you pass that information on to them. Um, it was really important for us to focus on a woman of color because uh, a woman of color has not yet won the Caldecott uh, Award. And uh, I feel like that is a glass ceiling that needs to be broken. Absolutely. Yeah, but so thank you so much. Oh, thank you. So nice talking to you too. Thank you again for joining us today while we were talking with Grace Lynn, author, illustrator, award winner, podcaster, visionary. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.